RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. We'd like to share an interview with you from the recent past. This story was proven popular among fellows at the time, and we believe new listeners to RAC's post-op podcast will enjoy it too. We do hope you enjoy this interview with Dr James Mukey from July 2021. A little hospital in the mountains of Kenya is not the first place many would choose to start a medical career. But for ophthalmologist Dr James Mukey, it was this setting in the 1980s which sowed his passion for fighting blindness in the years to follow. In 2020, Dr Mukey was awarded Australian of the Year in recognition for his many decades of pioneering blindness prevention, particularly in Southeast Asia. He co-founded Vision Myanmar and Sight for All, both initiatives to help prevent and treat blindness. From his base in Adelaide, Dr Mukey is championing action to prevent type 2 diabetes, a preventable disease and the leading cause of blindness in Australian adults. His Australian of the Year profile has helped him raise awareness of the role sugar and processed foods play in the incidence of type 2 diabetes. More of that in a moment. First, Chris Ashmore asks Dr Mukey what drew him to a career in ophthalmology and microsurgery. I've always had an interest in surgery. As long as I can remember, I wanted to use my hands to help people, to cure people. So when I was, say, eight or nine years of age, I loved building models, uh, World War II model airplanes and things like that. So doing fine work with my hands was always something that uh, was interesting to me. And then using that in a medical capacity, in a surgical capacity, was something that was particularly appealing. And as long as I can remember, I wanted to do medicine. So through high school, I worked my way, studied hard in order to get into medicine and ultimately to get into surgery. And uh, once I finished my internship, I went and spent a year working as a voluntary uh, general doctor in Kenya in Africa. And that instilled in me a desire to pursue a career in public health. It was a, a life-changing year for me. And so the combination of using my hands uh, to perform microsurgery in a public health capacity was what drew me then to ophthalmology. The idea of curing blindness using microsurgery was one that really appealed to me. Well, tell me about that experience. I mean, you spent a lot of years, as you say, in Kenya, but other sort of more desperate or war-torn countries around the world including the Middle East and parts of Southeast Asia. What experiences did you have? I seem to be attracted to these danger spots, don't I? <laughs> uh, yeah, so in Africa, that time in Kenya uh, was really reinvigorated a love of medicine for me. I was After my internship, I was a little disillusioned because I was mainly just treating patients, dealing with patients who had chronic diseases, more often than not self-inflicted, particularly smoking-related diseases, and we were starting to see dietary diseases creeping in at that stage in the 80s. And so I was becoming a little disillusioned and needed a change. And so Africa was at that point really appealing. And uh, I mentioned before I had uh, a desire to pursue this career in public health, but really it dates back to the idea of going to Africa and working dates back to my early childhood when I used to just love and be transfixed by a number of TV shows about Africa, Kimber the White Lion, Tarzan, Daktari. So when I finally started working in Kenya at this little hospital called Tumu Tumu, which is in the foothills of the Aberdeen Mountains, I loved the fact that I could now cure people. I wasn't just alleviating symptoms, prolonging life. 
I was actually able to cure people because most of the diseases I was encountering were not self-inflicted. So there were diseases like malaria and TB. So that really was something quite special for me at the time. And uh, as I mentioned, it, it really reinvigorated a love of medicine, which was starting to wane through my internship. I was also doing a bit of surgery, such as the opportunity to perform cesarean sections, which was another thing. Obstetrics was another thing that was really appealing to me. The, the positive nature of that uh, profession was wonderful. Uh, when I returned home to Australia, I studied ophthalmology. And then as soon as that training had finished, I went and worked at St John's Eye Hospital in Jerusalem uh, as an ophthalmologist. And so this allowed me to really build my confidence and competence and hone my microsurgical craft, particularly cataract surgery. Uh, cataract is the leading cause of blindness in the world and the microsurgery for cataract is one of the most exacting surgical procedures that's performed and I was able to really master that craft. And the other thing that I particularly loved during my time in Jerusalem was the opportunity to undertake outreach clinics in the refugee camps of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and helping people in those very poor communities really cemented this love of fighting blindness and working in poor communities. And then ultimately I went on to London and studied eye cancer at uh, Moorfields Eye Hospital and came back to Australia in 1998 where I took up positions at the Women's and Children's Hospital and the Royal Adelaide Hospital as a consultant ophthalmologist, particularly with a, an interest, a subspecialty interest in eye cancer. And so during those early years of being back in Adelaide, I um, wanted to keep that connection with working in poorer communities. And so I started getting involved in a number of research and teaching opportunities in Asia and some of the poorest countries in Asia. And that often involved in those early years teaching ocular oncology or eye cancer and having some extraordinary experiences there. I still remember working in a major ophthalmic teaching institute in Hanoi and in one day, I saw 12 children with retinoblastoma, which is a deadly eye cancer. And of those 12 kids, probably half of those kids were going to die because their disease had been mismanaged. Now, it wasn't my colleagues' fault. They just hadn't had the training to be able to deal with the disease. And so it was quite a, a devastating, heart-wrenching experience for me to see these kids who have a very curable eye cancer. In fact, it's the most curable of all childhood cancers. And yet these kids were really facing a gloomy future. So this was one of the driving factors for me to set up Sight for All because I realized that you can make a difference by providing training, uh, teaching, education, not just for cataract blindness, but for comprehensively to be able to fight all causes of blindness. Well, since your first experience in the 1980s, has it changed a lot? Is it getting better? Uh, absolutely, no question about it. I haven't been back to, well, I've been back to Africa as a tourist, but I haven't been back to Kenya. I've been dying to get back to Kenya. It's been over 30 years since I was in Kenya. We have a relationship with colleagues in Kenya. And we have some projects in Ethiopia. Again, I was supposed to be going to Ethiopia last year, but uh, obviously COVID-19 scuttled that plan. So I haven't been back to Africa to see the changes, but certainly in the years, over 20 years I've been working in Asia, seeing quite dramatic changes and really seeing our colleagues take on their ability to fight blindness in a comprehensive and sustainable manner. Well, you had some pretty hair-raising experiences when you were overseas, particularly uh, in Africa and, and specifically Uganda. I understand you escaped from some rebel soldiers. Is that right? 
<laughs> Before I started work in Kenya, I wanted to go and visit the gorillas in Rwanda. So Rwanda's a landlocked country to the southwest of Kenya. And at the time, I'd, I'd saved through my internship. It was my first year of earning money so that I could volunteer as a general doctor in Kenya. So I didn't have a lot of excess. So I actually went by land. I took the night train from Nairobi to the border with Uganda and on through southern Uganda. You know, much of the country at the time was still in civil war. This was 1989. But I eventually made it to the southwest corner of the country. It was the only safe part of the country when Idi Amin, the former brutal dictator of Uganda, was attempting to re-enter this country that had deposed of his evil rule several years before. And uh, he'd sent an advanced party of rebel soldiers to pave the way for his return when I just happened to find myself in the very same village at the very same time that this group of men decided to stop for the night. I was with a, a travelling companion, a guy from New York City. He'd never left New York before, but we, uh, as soon as we set foot in this village, we were surrounded by this ragtag and heavily armed bunch of men. They tore apart our backpacks uh, looking for weapons. Uh, they didn't find any weapons, but they found our binoculars, and so they accused us of being spies. And actually, they told us that they'd seen us spying on them from the hills above the village. So these guys were drunk, they were disheveled, and they were very, very menacing. They marched us away at gunpoint and locked us in a ramshackle hut at the edge of the village. And they told us to behave ourselves, and then they left us alone in that hut. And you can imagine we were absolutely petrified. Uh, so we decided we had to get out of there. We wouldn't survive the night if we stayed in that village. So we broke out the back of the hut and escaped the village into the jungle behind and eventually made it to the road and on to safety. But it's a, quite a lot longer story than that, but that's in a nutshell what happened. But uh, it was one of many life-threatening experiences I had in Africa and, and a number also in Jerusalem. Well, that's incredible. And uh, at risk of sounding frivolous, have you seen the, the movie The Last King of Scotland? Yes, yes. In fact, I actually read the book and the book is fabulous. The movie is pretty good too, um, but the book is particularly good. But when I saw the movie, which was, I can't quite remember the actor's name, but the very opening scenes, they show him working as a volunteer doctor in a little rural hospital in Uganda. And it just had such a connection and memory for me because that was me. I was that doctor and, uh, and I loved it. But the, uh, the story is quite extraordinary and uh, uh, fascinating. Fortunately, um, I didn't have quite the experience that he did becoming Idi Amin's personal uh, doctor. So it wasn't based on you? No. <laughs> now, last year, James, you were awarded Australian of the Year. Congratulations. Thank you. How did that feel when you first knew of the award? Well, they, they actually give you a call. In fact, you have to become the state award recipient before you can become the national award recipient. So I got a call saying, will I accept it? And, and yes, that's a, a wonderful realisation that someone's actually nominated you. It's an incredible honour to win the award. I wasn't expecting to win the state award, let alone the national award. And so when I did, and they did call up my name at the South Australian Award Ceremony, it was a, a surprise, but a, a very fabulous opportunity. But I think more importantly for me, it was an opportunity for Sight for All to gain the recognition that it really deserves. I mean, Sight for All, and we'll talk about it, no doubt, uh, a little bit further down. The, um, the work that Sight for All is doing is, is absolutely phenomenal. So it seemed to me an amazing accolade for Sight for All, an amazing opportunity to really get us on the map. But uh, then I went on and, and fortunately received the national award. And then not long after that, COVID-19 struck. And so... Uh, 
Unfortunately, it wasn't the year I was expecting and certainly not the year to put Site for All on the map. So hopefully that opportunity will still arise. Well, let's talk about that then, James. The award itself, of course, was for your humanitarian work and your charity, Site for All. Tell me about Site for All and what do you do? So Site for All is an organisation, a not-for-profit organisation, what we call a social impact organisation, which is dedicated to fighting blindness in many poor communities of the world. Uh, we have a real focus in Asia, which is home to half the world's blind adults and, and two-thirds of the world's blind kids. But we also have projects, as I mentioned, in, in Africa and in Australia in Aboriginal mainstream communities. Now, our tagline is teaching the world to see, and we have a mission of creating a world where everyone can see. And we've got four main strategies, collaborative research, sustainable education, and also supporting that education with appropriate equipment and infrastructure. And the final one is awareness raising. And I think the best story I can share with you that encapsulates all of that is a story of a young eye specialist in Myanmar, a country that's going through terrible troubles at the moment. But I was involved in 2007 in a study in Myanmar to determine the causes of blindness amongst children in schools for the blind across these poorest of countries. And it was an absolutely staggering and life-changing experience being involved in that study. We found that nearly half of the kids who were blind had blindness that could have been prevented or treated, so half were needlessly blind and shouldn't be in, even be in those schools. But the thing that was really profoundly impacting on myself and on the entire team was the leading cause of blindness we found that was measles. So to be surrounded by children at schools for the blind from one end of the country to the other, and children who were irreversibly blind, horribly disfigured, was one of the most confronting experiences of my medical life. And it really made me realise that there's so much more to blindness than cataract, and it really drove home the power of prevention in medicine. When we returned to Australia, I ruminated quite a lot over the experience and realised that what we needed to do was to train a children's eye specialist or a paediatric ophthalmologist for the country. So I actually went back to Myanmar with the results of the study after it had been published, and I met with the Minister of Health and uh, was able to persuade him that we needed to train a paediatric ophthalmologist for the country. So we ended up bringing a young ophthalmologist from Yangon, the capital city, to Adelaide to train at the Winston Children's Hospital here as a paediatric ophthalmologist. So he returned home after his year of hands-on training as the very first paediatric ophthalmologist in the country. We set him up in the country's very first children's eye unit at Yangon Eye Hospital, which is the major teaching institution, where he works to this day. Obviously, his work's been a bit disrupted at the moment, but uh, he's uh, now providing close to 30,000 treatments to children every year in his uh, unit. It's, it's quite staggering, almost impossible to comprehend. But uh, what's even more impressive is that he is now using his expertise to train his colleagues. In 2015, he finished training the second paediatric ophthalmologist for the country, and he now trains at least two every year. So it just really highlights the sustainable nature of our work which is the hallmark of what we do. Mm. Well, some of that research that you've done in recent years is, as you mentioned, having good nutrition and that there's a link between sugar intake and other complications with health, including blindness. Is that right? 
Yes, absolutely. So when I received the South Australian Award in late 2019, my acceptance speech, I talked about the fact that diabetes is a blinding disease. It's actually the leading cause of blindness amongst working age adults in this country. And I thought my mission would be to encourage people to have regular eye checks because over half of the 1.7 million people with diabetes are not having these sight-saving eye checks. So I thought my role was to encourage people to have these eye checks uh, then when I received the award and going forward to the national award, I thought, gee, you know, if I am to win the national award, not expecting to, but uh, don't I have a, a deeper responsibility here? I think I would have got bored just jumping up and down telling people to have their eyes checked. Uh, so I really looked more deeply at diabetes, but particularly type 2 diabetes, which is an insidious disease, largely preventable disease, which is impacting on about 1.7 million Australians. Uh, there's also another 2 million with pre-diabetes, many of whom will go on to get type 2 diabetes in the coming years. Um, and type 2 diabetes makes up about 90% of cases. Uh, this disease wreaks havoc on the entire body. Blindness is the most feared complication, uh, but the other one that affects uh, surgeons is to have to amputate uh, the lower limbs of patients whose feet and legs become gangrenous due to their disease. It's also a life-threatening disease. So this is Really, I felt this, this sense of urgency and this responsibility to start to raise awareness of the fact that type 2 diabetes is a man-made dietary disease related to the consumption of excessive sugar, refined carbohydrates and seed oils. And it's those three substances that make up ultra-processed foods which have been proven uh, to be very unhealthy for us. So... When I was thinking about this uh, leading up to the national award, I came up with a concept called the five A's of sugar toxicity, because I think sugar is the real driving force of this. The five A's being addiction, sugar is highly addictive, it's been shown to be as addictive as nicotine. Alleviation, we often use sugar to alleviate stress or to make us feel better when we're down to counter the cortisol reaction that's flooding the body during anxious times. The third A is accessibility, you know, sugar is cheap and absolutely everywhere in our world. We can't walk into most service stations without being confronted by a wall of confectionery. And you certainly can't check out from most supermarkets and stores without being enticed by half-priced chocolates and soft drinks. Fourth A is addition. Something like 75% of our food and drinks have added sugar. And the final A is advertising. Our world is flooded with TV commercials and ads for sugary products and ultra-processed products and sometimes in a very insidious and predatory ways. So my advocacy has really been about those five A's of sugar toxicity and a strategy to uh, try and, and reduce its impact. As well as that is another look at the National Dietary Guidelines. Is that right? What would you like to see changed with the Dietary Guidelines? Sure. So the dietary guidelines, they're outdated. The last review was uh, completed in 2013, or the last edition was released in 2013. But not only that, it's a flawed document and it's a biased document. It's flawed because it discourages the eating of natural saturated fat. But this is on no strong scientific evidence. In fact, saturated fatty acids, natural saturated fatty acids, are actually critical to our health and to our survival. So these are natural saturated fats such as those found in uh, full-fat dairy, eggs, unprocessed red meat, even dark chocolate. So there's no evidence. In fact, uh, the American College of Cardiology in July last year released a systematic review showing that there is no strong evidence to discourage the eating of these 
product. So it's really important information that will have to be included in the next review of the dietary guidelines. The dietary guidelines also encourages, rather than natural saturated fats, encourages the consumption of industrially produced seed oils, what we call euphemistically vegetable oils, and yet these have been linked to cardiovascular disease in many studies. The eating pattern or the eating recommendation of the dietary guidelines is one of a high carb pattern, and this is driving, I believe, our epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes. Now, the dietary guidelines even say, I think, in the first page that they're meant for the average healthy Australian. But actually, if you realise that over two-thirds of Australian adults and over one-quarter of our kids are overweight or obese, then the average Australian is not healthy. So these guidelines are not appropriate. But what's really concerning is that our College of General Practitioners are using the dietary guidelines to recommend the eating pattern suggested by them uh, for patients with type 2 diabetes and other metabolic disorders. So these are patients with carbohydrate intolerance. Type 2 diabetes is a disease of carbohydrate intolerance. So this is high carb eating patterns, absolutely not what we should be encouraging people with metabolic disorders to consume. Also, uh, many of the diabetes associations are recommending using the dietary guidelines for patients with diabetes. Again, this is something that we need to change. And the other thing I mentioned is that the dietary guidelines are biased. Uh, their making was conflicted by the food industry, particularly the ultra-processed food industry. So when we have the food industry involved in the creation of a dietary guideline, whether that be uh, rather clandestinely, I suppose you would say, uh, then this is a real concern. And my role, I've actually applied to be on the Dietary Guideline Review Committee, is to ensure that the food industry, particularly the ultra-processed food industry, do not have a place in the creation of the next version of our dietary guidelines. Well, one thing you'd like to see is a tax on sugar. Is that right? So when I received the award in my acceptance speech, I talked about a multi-pronged strategy and one of the many things I talked about was a levy or a tax on, on sugary drinks. And yet the journalists in Canberra, the political journalists, uh, was the thing that they latched onto. But really, if we can just step aside from the tax issue at the moment and really look at what I've been advocating for. You know, I've been advocating for action and particularly action by our government. And I came up with another three overarching A's which really drive this strategy that's needed. So awareness, accountability and assistance. So let's look at those quickly each in turn and, and the sugar tax will insert into this, you'll see. So awareness of the addictive power of sugar and that we use it to alleviate stress. You know, myself as a doctor, before I started reading about this in late early 2020, I was not aware of this. I was also not aware of the health dangers of ultra-processed foods and fast foods. I was not aware of the preventability and reversibility of type 2 diabetes. And I know that, that many patients, when they're diagnosed with type 2, are not aware of the many life-changing and life-threatening complications that type 2 diabetes can inflict on them. So awareness is really, really important in this process. The second A is accountability. Accountability, again, if you look at those five A's of sugar toxicity and we look at the accessibility, you know, the predatory marketing that goes on, for example, at checkout counters, we often see half-price junk food at checkout counters where it's preying on the vulnerable, preying on our kids, preying on people who are addicted to sugary products. And that's just one example. We're even seeing uh, junk food on sale at chemists these days, which I find quite extraordinary. If we look at the addition A, you know, a clear front of pack labelling system is so critical so that 
consumers aware of the amount of added sugar that's contained within. There are also something like 76 common names for sugar. And so this only serves to confuse the consumer even more. So we just need a much clearer accountable labelling system than the one we currently have, which is a health star rating system, which is also flawed. And and this addition is where the levy or tax on sugary products would come in. But there's some really good evidence and solid reasoning behind it. In the 10 years to 2017, there was a 30% increase in the consumption of sugary drinks in Australia. Uh, sugary drinks have been linked to type 2 diabetes in many, many studies now. And in many countries, a levy on sugary drinks has been shown to reduce purchase and consumption. And it's been modelled here in Australia, if there was a 20% levy on sugary drinks alone, that would raise over $600 million, which could then be used to fund awareness strategies, such as what I was talking about before, awareness strategies that we have, I have never seen on free-to-air TV. And looking at that final A of advertising, now our kids are exposed to three TV commercials every hour for unhealthy food products. And on social media, something like 100 promotions for unhealthy products every week. So once again, we need accountability to stop this preying on our children. And the final A is assistance, and there's an assistance needed at a number of levels, and with relevance to medical practitioners, let's look at those. So medical students, my son was in second year medicine last year, and he had the opportunity to do nutrition as an elective. It wasn't even compulsory, and yet this is the biggest health crisis facing doctors, facing patients, facing our societies. General practitioners need assistance. They need the resources to be able to educate their patients with metabolic disorders. And they need to have the time. It is time consuming. So they need the time and the resources and the education to be able to do this. And looking at our patients with metabolic disorders, uh, there are a number of uh, ways that we can assist patients. And, and one of which is patients who are addicted to have access to counselling and to uh, helplines, as we did for or as we still do for nicotine and alcohol addiction, and also for patients with uh, metabolic disorders to have access to healthy real food rather than having to rely on ultra-processed junk food. So that's just a number of uh, ways I've been raising awareness and advocating uh, for a change in what I call our dietary disaster. Well, that last point perhaps is a good segue into my last question, James, and that is, what advice would you give to surgeons or other medical professionals about the role they can play in reducing diabetes in the community? So it's really important for all of us, all medical practitioners, surgeons, general practitioners and physicians to take a real interest in this. This is the biggest health crisis that we face, as I mentioned earlier. You know, our poor diet, which is laden with sugary drinks and ultra-processed foods, is responsible for more disease and death than alcohol, nicotine and inactivity combined. So this is such important information. We need to get away from this concept of having to exercise more. Diet is the big driver of this. So we all need to be aware of this. And myself, as an eye surgeon, Every day in my clinic, I am seeing patients who are losing vision, going blind due to this disease, particularly type 2 diabetes. But I didn't see it as my responsibility. I thought it was the responsibility of the GPs, of the dietitians, of the nutritionists. And so I think we, and particularly as surgeons, need to take 
a level of responsibility in educating our patients. And what I'm doing now, when I have patients with vision-threatening diabetic retinopathy, I'm encouraging them all to go back to the general practitioners and to discuss the opportunity to put their disease into remission. So just looking at that, you know, type 2 diabetes, as I mentioned earlier, is a, a largely preventable disease. So if you are a medical practitioner, uh, if you are discussing diet with them, please don't recommend the Australian Dietary Guidelines. As I mentioned, uh, this is a guideline that has a high carb eating recommendation, the very thing that is not appropriate for people with diseases such as type 2 diabetes. Also, the fact that type 2 diabetes is potentially reversible, or we often use the word uh, remission, putting type 2 diabetes in remission is actually a very real thing. The evidence has been there for quite some time, but it's certainly growing. And there are now over 100 controlled clinical trials to show that type 2 diabetes can be put into remission. There are three proven clinical methods, bariatric surgery, which is of course of relevance to surgeons. And there are two dietary methods, a very low calorie diet and a low carb diet. And just briefly looking at those, bariatric surgery really should be a last line strategy. It works, but it's expensive, it's risky, and entails major abdominal surgery on a normal organ. So why not take a dietary approach to what is a dietary disease? And of the two dietary approaches, the one that I feel has the most promise is a low carb diet. As I mentioned, the high carb dietary pattern that most of us are consuming is not appropriate. So the appropriate one is a low carb diet. And as I said, there are over a hundred trials now to show that it works. And I actually have my very own patients who are finding this life changing, you know, really having a huge impact on their life and hopefully to ultimately prevent, you know, many of these really devastating complications of type two. You know, and, and also looking at our colleagues, the general practitioners, and to support them. You know, this takes time. I actually had a, a dietary consultation, well, not so much a dietary consultation, but I was talking to one of my patients about diet, and it opens up a can of worms, and it's actually quite a long consultation. It does take time. But ultimately, when you see the extraordinary impact when patients put their diabetes into remission, they start to come off their insulin. Some of them come off their medications. They drop extraordinary weight and you realize that this is not only going to lower the chance of developing these really devastating complications but also hopefully to extend their life it is incredibly satisfying and i would encourage all of my colleagues to to start to take an interest in this dr james mukey rack's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the royal australasian college of surgeons and leading financial services organization the bongiorno national network the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.